everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman and very special guest, Dr. Josh Mobley. Great to have Dr. Mobley here today, who's a professor of great texts at Baylor and is actually teaching on Aquinas and uh, this semester. And uh, Drew will set up the content today, why we have Dr. Mobley here with us. But I uh, just want to thank you for joining in and your ongoing listenership as this is our, what, second or third uh, episode, I guess this is our second episode of 2022, continuing to get great feedback from you, continue to send in your thoughts, questions, and even as we line out the content for this year, we'd love to hear from you and, and what uh, what would scratch the itch for the questions uh, around the, the ideas that are shaping culture today. We would love to continue to utilize this platform to equip the body of Christ. So uh, with that as an intro, Drew, why don't you set up where we're going today? Josh, so excited to have you on today, and uh, we're going to be diving into looking at the theology of Thomas Aquinas, and um, I'll explain a bit more about that here in a second, turn it over to Josh to walk us through it. Uh, before we do, um, I've known you for a long time, Josh, um, going back to college, but I thought it might be helpful to just get a little bit more biographic data about you, so <laughs> you're here in Waco, uh, just tell us a bit more about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's great to be here. I really appreciate you guys having me on. So I am from Texas originally. I came to Baylor as an undergraduate student way back in 2004. And uh, then was during our time here in Waco, was a part of Antioch, and then we moved to the Middle East. We were there for six years before moving to England, where I did a PhD in theology. And then through some providential and or surreptitious uh, circumstances, ended up meeting someone who was looking for, to hire someone at Baylor. So I'm a, currently a lecturer at Baylor now, teaching in great texts, and I'm really happy to be back in Waco. So what sparked your interest in getting that PhD, and what were some of the things that that you dove into in your studies? Yeah, I think for me, it was a, a, a kind of vocational fit question. Um, I just, every six months, found myself staying up all night researching uh, grad school programs. And so I finally kind of pulled the trigger on one that was a good fit, uh, and as I did my master's degree, it just became very clear that this is kind of what I was made to do. And so moved to England, did a PhD, principally on the doctrine of the Trinity. So in the process of doing that, engaged uh, Thomas Aquinas' theology of the Trinity fairly rigorously. And I, I, I find him just a really compelling person to think alongside of. That's what I did, doctrine of the Trinity, and connected with Thomas Aquinas that way. So the purpose of this topic today of looking at Aquinas is his theology is extremely influential, even still today. Just Josh, as you just shared, you know, you're studying, you actually studied other theologians, but you almost can't study some of these other things without first going to Aquinas and interacting with his thought. It's still considered to be near canonical teaching of the Catholic Church. And, and then a lot of Christian philosophy, even non-Catholic, um, leans pretty heavily on Aquinas. And um, so both Thomistic and Neo-Thomistic theology is... Uh, remains a, a very powerful force in the church today and, the, and intellectually in the church today. And so I find that interesting because it's so it's so significant there, but I would imagine most of us listening have never engaged with Aquinas or at least realized that we engage with Aquinas that much. So that's having Josh on today. You know, you've studied this so in depth. We thought, let's, uh, we'd love to have you share some more. What is this theology? Can you take us into it? 
some of his key ideas. If you know, if you're teaching a class and you're summarizing, the, obviously it's hard to hard to summarize uh, the totality of his work. But some of his <laughs> principal ideas that remain a powerful force today. So we'll start there. Then we'll get into both how that might compare and contrast to other ideas and and what can we learn from it, and then what are maybe some critiques uh, as well. So that's the, that's the flow of today. So Josh, take us into give us the overview. Of, yeah. When we talk about this theology, what are we talking about? Okay, great. So Thomas Aquinas was born in 1225, so that's the first quarter of the 13th century, roughly 300 years before the Reformation, in a time that's referred to as the High Middle Ages. And they're called the High Middle Ages because there's just this massive resurgence of learning that happens at, in this time period. So after the fall of the Roman Empire, which was just kind of a total civilizational collapse over the course of 100 or 200 years, a lot of the great learning of antiquity, Aristotle, Plato, the various kinds of science that they had, a lot of that was lost in the, the western half of the kind of Mediterranean basin. And as that was, it was lost, And but they there was this kind of recollection. They had a few works of Aristotle, but not many of them. But slowly, and uh, interestingly enough, through actually the Islamic conquest, they become more and more familiar with these ancient writings that they knew existed, but they didn't know what they said. Um, they didn't have firsthand copies of them. And so um, when the Muslims conquered Spain, they brought with them copies of this ancient Greek philosophy that they themselves had received from the Christians, Jews, and pagans in the Middle East. And so it's there that Christians begin to re-interact with all of this, and it leads to a real explosion in learning, but also at the same time, an enormous amount of anxiety. Because what do you do with these highly developed philosophical systems that seem in some ways really amenable to Christianity, but in other ways they don't necessarily connect directly? I mean, neither Plato nor Aristotle were Christians. They predate Christ, but they weren't even Jewish. So like, how, how on earth do you put these things together? One approach was uh, what was called the two truths school, and this was the idea that there are two truths. There's religious truth of faith, and then there's what we might think of as scientific or philosophical truth of reason, and these two things actually don't interact with each other. They're two separate realities, and they may even conflict with each other, and that's fine because they're just two totally different realms of truth. And Thomas Aquinas comes along, and he just thinks that that's absolutely bonkers. And the reason is because there's only one God, and God is truth, with a capital T. And to be more specific, Christ is truth, right? He, Christ says he's the truth, but then you have all of these passages as well about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and by him all things were created that were created. So all things are made in and through Christ, so there's only one truth, which means that every aspect of reality ought to be describable in Christian terms, and nothing is off limits for the Christian imagination. And so the way that I like to characterize Thomas's philosophical and theological project is an attempt to gather together as much truth as he can possibly wrap his mind around. And try to see how it might form a coherent whole, and in doing so, to offer it back to God in praise and worship. Because for Thomas, that just is the human vocation, right? So we are all animals. We have lots in common with the animal world, but we also are reasonable. Like we have minds and spirits capable of communing with God. And so part of what it means to be a rational creature is to be one who's capable of recognizing God's truth in the world, 
and articulating it, and in doing so to offer it back to God in praise and worship. So it's a, it is an act of very careful, I mean incredibly careful, meticulous, detailed, philosophical and theological inquiry, but the end goal really is the glorification of God, who is truth itself, and the knowledge of God, ultimately, and the love of God. So that's that's where he's going, and to say it again, he's trying to gather as much truth as he can wrap his mind around in order to articulate it as a coherent whole that he might offer it back to God in praise. So that's what he's after, and he does so in just hugely influential ways. And as you said, you you really can't do theology without interacting with Thomas Aquinas, either knowingly or unknowingly. So all the reformers had read Thomas. He continues to be read. He's very influential, obviously, in Catholic circles, even in Eastern Orthodoxy. He's interacted with often as well. So he's a he's a hugely important figure and worthy of our time. Well, wow, that's that's a that's a great overview. Um, so tell us a bit more. How did he understand God, and how is that critical to his thought? Yeah. So to start out, then Thomas is really convinced, and to put it the most simply that God is not a thing. God is not a creature like you or me. God doesn't have any of our limitations. God is the ultimate source of everything that is, but God is not like anything that you or I experience. The best way to articulate that, the easiest way to see that is is in regard to God's attributes. Okay, so, you know, I'm like a relatively nice guy, but the other night I was reading a book and I finished reading it and I really didn't like it because I'm an academic and they pay us to dislike books. And so I I read this book and I really didn't like it. So I was kind of grumpy about this book. And then I got a text from my brother that said, hey, are you watching the game right now? And he went to Texas Tech and was asking if I was watching the Baylor game. And I had totally forgotten that they were even playing. And so I was like, oh yeah. So I turned on the TV just in time to watch Baylor lose to Texas Tech. So now I'm like really grumpy, okay? And then it's also kind of late and my kids keep getting out of bed. And so then I'm not only grumpy, but then I'm actually kind of rude to them, right? And so I have to like apologize to them for how I treated them in the moment because I was just in a bad mood. Okay, so I'm a relatively nice guy and I have a certain measure of goodness, but my goodness comes and goes, right? It, it kind of ebbs and flows. And if you look over the course of my life, it's not that dramatic of a change, but hopefully I'm getting better over time, okay? So, you know, Drew, I've known you for 15 years. You know, 15 years ago, you were a good guy, but you're a better guy now because of the trajectory of your life. Yeah, so you, but the difference is that you and I have a certain measure of goodness, but God is goodness with a capital G. You or I might love to a certain degree here or there, but God is love with a capital L. So God's attributes and God's essence are the same, to put it in technical terms. God's attributes and God's essence are one, and that even includes God's in Thomas's language, God's act of being. So God doesn't even fall under the category of being itself because God just is being. And he takes that from that passage in Exodus where Moses is talking to God in the burning bush. And he says, tell me your name, which in context is the question of, okay, well, which of these local deities are you? Are you Molech? Are you Baal? Who are you? And God's response is, I'm not a God among gods. I am that I am. And the way that Thomas interprets that is to say that God is not one thing among things, one creature among creatures, but God is the ultimate transcendent source of all things. God just is. And so in that way, God is radically different than you or I. 
But the way that pays out is that God is so absolutely different from us that actually God is capable of being utterly intimate to everything that we do. So, you know, you're sitting in this chair over here, and I'm over in this chair over here, and you and I cannot occupy the same physical space at the same time, right? Because we're both the same kind of thing. And our bodies take up space and they compete with one another for that space. So there's just no way that you or I could be in the same, like we couldn't sit in that chair at the same time, right? But that's because we're the same kind of thing. God is not the same kind of thing that you or I are, which means that God is able to be absolutely intimate to everything that we do. So what that means is that every time I do something good, I'm actually, in Thomas's terms, participating in the goodness of God. Every time I love, I'm participating in the love that God is. Every time I think a thought, I do so by participation in God, who is thought itself, okay? Who is love itself, who is act itself. And so that means that every single thing that I do from the beginning of my life to the end of my life is shot through with God's presence. And God is absolutely intimate to every aspect of my life. And so St. Augustine, who Thomas follows quite closely on many things, will say that God is more intimate to me than I am to myself. And that's what Thomas is after here, that God is so radically other than us that God's actually free to be radically intimate to us, to everything that we do. But that kind of leaves open a question, because you could get there almost with basically Neoplatonism, right? Like that, you could get to that kind of position on God with a few amendments by basically following Porphyry or Plotinus or something like that. So what about Christ? Like, what about the cross? What about sin? Humanity in general, right? Well, I think Thomas is just absolutely convinced that you're a sinner. And he is under no sort of illusions that we are all better than we really are. Okay, so all of our lives are marked by sin, and we all need Christ. But the way that Thomas explains it is this, that whenever you, all of your kind of the natural processes of your life, and I should say, everything I'm about to say is hugely controversial in the circles of people who study Thomas Aquinas. So Thomists argue about everything, and so I'm going to just take my tack on it, and if you want to know the other side, you can send me an email later. Or if you want to complain about it because you're like fully convinced the other side, you can. But basically, what Thomas would suggest there is that you have these kinds of innate natural abilities, right? And your human nature is not completely corrupted by the fall. So in contrast to someone like John Calvin, right, who would say that you are totally depraved, Thomas is going to say, well... I mean, you still have a human nature that still functions, because otherwise you wouldn't be human anymore if you didn't, okay? So you still have a functioning human nature. It hasn't been completely corrupted by the fall, but it has been so deeply corrupted that you don't even know what your deepest desires are. So as I said before, every time you do something good, it's a reflection of the eternal goodness of God. And, and every time you love like your children or your wife or something like that, there is this impulse there that there's something greater happening. There's some eternal reality that I'm drawing upon. And what is that eternal reality? And there is this deep longing of the human soul for the vision of God. There's a deep longing of, of our souls to commune with God. But we don't even know that. Like, we're so fractured by sin that we don't even realize what it is our deepest desires are drawing us towards. 
And so we spend our desires in all the wrong places, right? So we look for satisfaction in all of these temporal things rather than in God and in God's eternity. And so that's why we need Christ. And so Christ comes, um, Christ is incarnate. And one of the things then that, that Christ does is he takes our sinful, broken human nature, he heals it, and then he lifts it beyond what we could ever ask or even imagine. So in kind of classical Christology, Jesus is fully God and fully human. But that doesn't mean that Jesus just ticks the boxes of what it means to be human, right? That, you know, well, to be a human means to have a heart and a soul and a body and, you know, these kinds of things. And he just check, 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 check. Okay, Jesus is human. It actually means on, on like the classic kind of patristic understanding of this is that Jesus is actually the fullest human who's ever existed. Jesus is the most human human who ever humaned, right? And that means that human nature is most fully present and most fully recognizable in Christ. And what happens then when you're saved is that you join in the humanity of Christ. Your humanity is raised up with Christ's humanity, and that's the whole reason that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and you and I are raised up and seated with him in heavenly places because our humanity has been carried with his humanity to the throne of God. And so your hum- the deepest longings of your human nature, which you don't even know you have, because of sin, and you can never possibly fulfill on your own, are going to be fulfilled and are going to be restored and then fulfilled in Christ in a way that surpasses your greatest, your greatest expectations. The language for this would be that, that all of us have a natural desire for the supernatural or a natural desire for the vision of God, for communion with God that our natures long to be with God, but we have we lack the tools to fulfill that on our own, and that's why we need grace and we need Christ. And and so God then just fulfills the deepest longings of our heart. And and that's kind of where it goes. So some of that's that perhaps is just a, a really kind of nuanced way of saying that there's a God-shaped hole in all of us and you know we need Jesus. But it is a very carefully articulated sense of God pervading all of reality, but then also at the same time, all of us needing God to, to lift us up to himself. So. so let me try to um, just summarize what I'm hearing you say, because these are huge topics. I mean, every one of these uh, could be a dissertation for someone, you know, and has been, and for many people. Yes. Uh, but to, to, to maybe take a stab at a summary here. So for Aquinas, we have ultimately all that is, is all the universe, all thought, all truth ultimately culminates in God who is other. He is not a being among beings, but God is is other. He's ultimate. He's beyond, and he's the very essence of goodness, love, truth. Um, even as you said, Josh, humanity itself, all those things can only find their full expression in God. And so what we see in this earth then are, are manifestations of that, but we live in a world that's shattered by sin. Not so much so that it's entirely lost, but that it's marred. And apart from the the revelation of Christ, we are incapable of experiencing the fullness of God just purely in this natural world, even though there are still reflections of God in this world. And so that takes the revelation of Christ coming in, and then it's in participating with him that we actually gain access to, to the fullness of this vision of God that we can find in Christ. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great summary. You should have just done the whole podcast. So based on that understanding, and hopefully as you're tracking with this, you get a get an awareness of, of the background. Uh, one thing that'll come up with um, with Aquinas is this, uh, like a picture of a house is what I've seen often, where there's two stories. 
And that then becomes a central part of us understanding how God reveals himself to us. And, you know, Vic and I, we talk about this a lot of how, how, do we, how do we know anything? How do we know God? How do we understand God's revelation in this world? And um, Aquinas is, is a major thinker on this topic. So, Josh, can you explain that a little bit more? What, is the, what are the two floors of the house or whatever other way you might, metaphor you might want to employ? And how does that reveal God's revelation to us? Okay. Yeah, so this is one of those aspects of Thomas's thought that is deeply controverted. And you basically can't say anything about Thomas without making somebody mad. Uh, because, That's our goal here. Yes, yeah, so anger as many Thomists as possible. One of the the kind of standard way of interpreting Thomas that that really took that really kind of took off in early modernity, so like the 1500s uh, or so, is to kind of you have this realm of nature and then you have the kind of realm of grace. And that these two things are connected to one another, but they're ultimately, they have to be, the difference between them must be maintained. And one of the weaknesses of Thomas's thought, from my perspective, and I'm going to steal a line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer here. So Bonhoeffer was criticizing a student of Thomas Aquinas from the 20th century named Eric Shvara. And Bonhoeffer's criticism of Shvara was he said, you keep talking about this human nature but the problem is this human nature you're talking about is so abstract, it's neither in Adam nor in Christ. And what he meant by that was that you've kind of, in doing this kind of natural philosophy under, you know, approach to human nature, kind of, you've abstracted so far from the story of God in Christ that we're no longer even really talking about humanity as we encounter it in the gospel. I don't know that that's necessarily a fair criticism of Thomas, but it is certainly fair in relation to a certain way of receiving and, and interpreting Thomas's thought. And that leads to this two-tier approach to nature and grace. So you have nature, and everything that is natural is discoverable by natural reason alone. And so you can fill out a pretty full picture of what human nature is, abstracted entirely from the witness of God in Christ. Okay, so you can do this kind of natural philosophy bit, and even within that, you can have a um, a relatively good idea about God. So that this is going to give rise later to something called natural theology. This idea, this question of like, well, how much can we know about God if we just by human nature alone, without any help from God's grace or from revelation? And of course, none of this exists in Thomas. This is all kind of later modern developments. But one of the problems there is that you end up, you okay, so we're going to define human nature, and it's going to be entirely kind of self-contained. And then grace is something that you just kind of plop on top of that, right? So human nature is this kind of self-contained, I mean, natural reality. And then the supernatural is something that gets added on top. It's a second story. It's like a second floor to the building or the second layer of the cake or whatever, you know, pick your metaphor. The benefit of that is that of that outlook is that it provides you a pretty kind of stable ground to do something like apologetics because you're like, look, we have this human nature. We can all agree on this kind of basis for reason and rationality. We can have a discussion here and we don't have to include revelation because we don't agree on that. And so it gives you a pretty stable platform on which to conduct something like apologetics or interfaith dialogue or something like that. But the problem is that it really does kind of take us quite a ways from the story of God in Christ. And it also tends to 
cut off the transcendent potential of humanity in God's providence, uh, by which I mean God has called all of us to see him, right? God has called, there's not a human on this planet who God has not reached out to in love, to know him in Christ. So there's not a human on this planet to whom grace has not been offered. And that means that it really isn't finally possible to separate our human nature from what God has done for us in Christ and from God's calling on us in grace. And this is the controversial bit. And so like a a, a consistent Eastern Orthodox critique of Thomas Aquinas would be to say that, like I said earlier, you know, Jesus is the fullness of human nature. Jesus is human nature in its fullest possible actuality. And so if you want to know what human nature is, don't do natural philosophy. You look at the incarnation. You start with the incarnation, and then you work out what human nature is. You don't start with some kind of wholly imminent uh, natural philosophy. And I think there is something to that. I That's not really what Thomas is doing, but it is, a, I think, it is a certain trajectory that you can read out of his thought that I think is potentially problematic. So this feels significant because I think we're starting to get in, and part of why I even wanted to talk about Aquinas was, you know, we've introduced some other characters on this podcast. We've looked at people like Karl Barth. We've looked at uh, both both within the realm of theology, but also in the realm of philosophy. So we've talked some about just things like postmodernism or various forms of language critique or, you know, all these different schools of thought of how do we know what's real? Yeah. And as we look at Aquinas, you know, that we're seeing another side of this, you know, to what extent can we know what's real through uh, studying human nature as the example you just used or um, through uh, science or empiricism or, you know, so many different methods that are out there, both theological methods or non-theological methods. So much of this comes back to where we started, which is this quest to know what's real and know what's true. Uh, my observation of culture today is there's a lot of pessimism about our ability to even do that. Is, mm-hmm. is such a thing even possible? Yeah. And, um, you know, so then we, we insert a voice of this theological giant like Aquinas or some of these others that we've mentioned. And we've hit a little bit of that on this episode so far, but it might be helpful at this point to, uh, let's take some great Christian thinkers. Can we compare and contrast how they might approach this question? So how would, you know, we've talked about Aquinas. How does that differ from Bart? Or from, you mentioned Calvin, you know, what are a few of these people that we might be familiar with, uh, to at least to some extent, how, how do their thoughts differ? Because I think that can help us, you know, I, I would imagine for most of us and our listeners, I don't know that very many of us are part of a stream that is wholesale sold out on one of those voices, but they're yeah. all influencing as we try to muddle our way through a culture that is really grappling with this concept of how do we know what's real and what's true um, and I think it can help us to to learn from voices in the past and the way they wrestled with it as we, in turn, try to make sense of it for our own generation. Yeah. You know, one of the difficulties with doing these kinds of comparisons is that the, the sense of the language has changed so dramatically, you know, so that by the time you get to Calvin 300 years later or whatever, you're almost, you're no longer even having the same conversation. And so at that point, a, a new philosophy has become much more prevalent that's called nominalism and nominalism is going to deeply influence though not thoroughly influence Calvin. So then you have to do, so all I'm saying is that it's, this is an obligatory academic caveat that it's really complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so like I said, Calvin is, is committed to the idea that you are totally depraved and that there is nothing in you that's good. And really what he means by that is that you just need God's grace. And there's no way that you can, he's really doubling down on this idea that you have to have God's grace. And on one hand, Thomas totally agrees 
Like, you have to have God's grace. You are totally in sin, and you need God's grace to liberate you from your sin and to elevate you into life with God. The difference would be that I don't think that Calvin would... That, that Thomas is just much more sanguine. He's just happier with the idea that your human nature is still capable of of living virtuously, right? Because that's still a gift from God, you know, and you still need God's help to do that, but you just aren't kind of absolutely, totally corrupt to your core. You still absolutely need God's grace, but there is there is a God-given capacity in you to be virtuous, right? And so he's going to just fundamentally kind of disagree with Calvin in that regard. In other ways, he and Calvin actually share, they share a lot of commitments um, about church, about church life, that one in particular. And then the other thing is that Thomas remains committed to the idea that you do have free will. So you have the freedom to make choices. Now, your freedom is sustained and is itself an expression of God's freedom, okay? So your freedom is not just like, you know, I woke up this morning and I could have eggs or toast. That's not really freedom, right? That's kind of just like capitalist, I get to choose what I want. For Thomas, freedom is fidelity to the real, okay? And so all of us then, we do have this freedom, and we have the freedom to choose, but that very freedom is an expression of God's freedom, and so fundamentally relies upon God underneath it. So it's not freedom to do things independent of God. It's a freedom that's sustained by God. And so by the time Calvin comes along, the question, the terms have shifted, and now freedom doesn't mean the, the freedom to enjoy and love God or a freedom sustained by God. Now it means a freedom from God, a freedom to do whatever the heck I want, a freedom to be good on my own in contrast to God. And so now that the terms have changed, Calvin's going to look at that. And he's going to say, no, you're not free to, do, to be good on your own because his sense of freedom has just shifted. Right, So he's going to say, you do not have free will, you cannot make any good choices on your own, every good choice is made by God, and or every bad choice too, unfortunately. Whereas for Thomas, yes, it's true, every good, cho- every good choice you make is made possible by the divine, and yet it's still your choice. It's a kind of both-and approach to it. So one, one reality as we dive into the thought, and I'll, I'll build off your academic uh, caveat here, is that we have to, you know, differentiate between the thinkers. So, you know, Calvin is also contested in how he's read, yes. but we also have modern interpreters of them. So, you know, you have, for most of us, I, not that many people have thoroughly dissected Calvin's Institute or uh, Summa Theologica or, you know, these ancient works that are so influential, but instead we've taken on schools of thought that... Yeah. That have developed with you know this principal person at the beginning, but then generations of that. So you know, in a, in a modern example, um, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, you look at a guy like modern forms of Calvinism versus schools of thought coming from um, Thomas Aquinas is this idea of to what extent has human nature been corrupted? All of them would agree that it's fully corrupted and apart from God cannot be redeemed. But you know, where Calvin might emphasize this concept of total depravity then Thomas might emphasize this idea of it's being marred or corrupted to the sense it can never reach what it's supposed to. Yeah. And in a way, without God's self-revelation, we are incapable of even understanding that. But there is still some goodness that's present. There is still some capacity for the good just by the sheer fact that we're created in the image of God. And so right there, there's a pretty clear difference. And then secondly, this concept of participation. So Aquinas would understand that while ultimately freedom, truth, goodness are God's and God's alone, 
human beings are free to participate in that. And so that there is a real activity that a human might interact with in that essence of who God is. Whereas Calvin might look at a bit more where it's purely determined, where mm-hmm. God himself is causing me to do these things, or maybe, you know, to some extent, uh, there, there's maybe some involvement I have, but ultimately that is determined by God. Yeah. And any concept of me doing that on my own would somehow rob God from his own sovereignty. Yes. Um, so you have these different schools of thought that whether or not that's exactly what they taught, I would, if I, if I read things rightly, that's probably how they're interpreted, at least today. And, yeah, for sure. Um, that then influences a lot of other Christian philosophy and theology. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true and a good summary. And then in his own way, Karl Barth, what he's receiving from Calvin, the sense that this really intense insistence on the ineffectiveness of human nature. And you just, you can have no knowledge of God whatsoever without revelation. And the story of history is the story of God's self-revelation. And it's God revealing God's self to all of us. And that revelation then has zero antecedents in the created order, right? So where, as you were talking about, the language of participation would say, you know, when Christ comes, all of a sudden you realize, oh, that love that I felt for my spouse was like an inchoate form of this eternal love of God that I've found in Christ. And Karl Barth would say, no, there are zero antecedent conditions in human nature for revelation. Revelation just kind of like smacks out of the air like lightning on a clear day. Okay? And that's because he just wants to avoid any sense in which humanity itself is contributing to its own salvation. There's no natural sub-layer, no crust upon which grace is the pie filling or something, right? Like, there just is no basis in nature. God just creates it all. And again, it's a question of terms, and we could talk about what Bart actually said and all of that, but I think in general how he's been received, it's this this sense in which, to use one theologian's phrasing, um, that there just there are zero antecedent conditions in human nature that could anticipate grace, and I think that Thomas Aquinas would say, well, human nature points towards fulfillment in God, even though that fulfillment will always outstrip the capacities of that nature. So, so yeah, there are some significant differences there. One thing to note at this point is, you know, as you keep giving these caveats about how language change, I think it's also worth noting that concerns change. So Aquinas is reacting, as you mentioned, Josh, where there's this two truths theory, this how do, how do we grapple with these competing schools of thought, and people are starting to advocate for um, almost different different truths and somehow trying to make it all work. And he's so his concern is how do we pull it all together as part of a cohesive whole that upholds the supremacy the otherness, the, the total absolute truth of God. Um, and so that really defines his project and why he does what he does. Whereas you look at a guy like Bart, and what he's doing, his concern is where, if you go back in history, people had taken this concept of natural theology that you mentioned of learning about God through nature, and that had gotten so developed in certain circles where it got to the point where people started to say that there is no need for God in this system anymore. God is this optional component, a part of this really natural theology that is no longer theology, but it's this naturalist metaphysic that had so dominated in so many different circles. And so, so much of his project is seeking to counter that. And I think we can see that in a lot of theologians that as we read their thought, we also have to understand what's driving them to write what they write and what's motivating them. 
So what's interesting, you know, uh, there's no way to ever under know this for sure, but you think of an Aquinas, what would he have done if he'd been plopped into Karl Barth's chair? What would vice versa, you know? And I think, hmm. and that's that's helpful for me because, I, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to have to sort through some of the questions in the culture that we live in that's radically pluralistic, that, you know, very relativistic in a lot of different ways, still has some of the same leftover concepts from modernity, but is also in the throes of post-modernity. And so our concerns are a little bit different. So we can draw from their thought, and each of them interacted with each other uh, as time goes on. But also we have to be honest and recognize what our concerns are. And I've observed over time, we tend to go a little too far in our area of concern. Um, and I think we look at all these people and, you know, they, they, they put the accent on something that's their point of chief concern. But there is a tendency centuries later for that accent to be overdeveloped in the next generation that comes along. And so that's what makes so many PhD positions available because we have to sort through all of this. Uh, but not, a, not enough PhD positions available, <laughs> yeah. by the way. <laughs> fair, fair, <laughs> fair point. Uh, so, so let's round out the episode here, Josh, with, um, you know, kind of our world. And we talk a lot about like Pentecostal charismatic theology and um, world theology. What, what is one thing that you think from Aquinas' thought you feel would help? Um, you know, the circles we all run in pretty well. So one concept. Well, I think... Part of it is an attitude. And as I mentioned in the beginning, this kind of like, let's gather as much truth as possible and articulate it in order to offer it to God in praise. But what's remarkable about the way that Thomas does that is he does it without an ounce of anxiety. And one of the characteristic features of Thomas's writing is that it is so chill. Like, in the sense that he's just not kind of amped up. I mean, he will name names, he will criticize people, he's not shy about that, but he does it without an ounce of anxiety. And I, I, I think that that's actually just a really compelling feature of his thought. It doesn't always make for the most interesting reading, so sometimes it can be a little bit monotonous. But but if you think about what he's doing, it really is quite profound. I mean, I grew up in the 90s. In the kind of Christian circles I was in, there was enormous anxiety about the relationship between faith and science, or faith and various kinds of philosophy, or whatever, and just to have to a perhaps unhealthy extent, like a, almost a kind of fear, you know? And Thomas just, he because he has faith that there's only one truth, he knows a priori from the start, these things cannot conflict with one another. If they are true, they, they cannot conflict with each other. And so if there is an apparent conflict between science and faith or philosophy and faith, then either we're doing our science and our philosophy wrong, or we're doing our faith wrong. So let's dig a little deeper and find out which one it is. And perhaps it's a little bit of both. But that kind of like calm approach, and that really bespeaks a certain measure of faith, I think, that God is the only truth. And if these things are true, then at somehow it has to fit together. So let's do the hard work of understanding it and seeing if it does and how it does, or perhaps what doesn't and what ought to be left aside. And that kind of attitude, which on one hand is incredibly calm, on the other hand is totally take no prisoners, right? It's like we're gonna talk, we're gonna say something about everything because it is in the it's part of the human calling to explore every avenue of truth. And so we have something to say about everything. So we're not going to hold back. We're going to say, we're going to do the hard work in order to have something to contribute in all these places. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And it doesn't mean that it isn't going to be uncomfortable, you know, even for our own, on the faith side of the equation. But it's it's that calm sense that, that there's only one truth, that I think, that attitude towards the world that I think is really powerful. Well, that's, that's such a good, yeah, I think that's such a great word about that, that steady peace. And, you know, I think in a way, 
maybe why there is, a, to some degree, a resurgence in his thought. It's interesting looking at the world around us where there is a crisis of epistemology in so many different places. And this concept that all truth is God's truth, I would hope would give Christian, especially Christian intellectuals, a confidence that we actually have a really important voice to contribute into a lot of different areas, whether it's received or not, and that there's a great sense of peace. And, you know, I'd add to that, if we have the Holy Spirit living within us, leading us and guiding us into that truth, um, what an incredibly compelling, so for those out there called to academics, uh, I hope you receive that as an encouragement um, to, to dive into what God's leading you to do. So that's a positive, and, and I love that you picked an attitude, um, not just a concept, but a, a mindset. Um, what would be a critique of Aquinas that you think this is an idea that is out there that for those of us, especially in, in our circles, we may need to look at and, and offer an alternative that is derivative of his thought? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the, the debate over how to interpret Thomas Aquinas, you know, you have the, the two-tier thing that you mentioned and that I'm pretty well opposed to. But I think that my opposition to it arises from coming from a charismatic and Pentecostal background, right? This sense that there cannot really be any sphere of life that remains untouched by the presence and grace of God. And I think that in as much as Thomas leaves the door open for that kind of reasoning, I think that is a problem. And it leads to something like a secular order. And, and I just am not convinced that that's ever really true or possible. And even if Thomas is not himself responsible for secularity, there is at least the possibility of that in the kind of architecture of some of the ways that he speaks. So yeah, and that doesn't mean that I that I'm like all in favor of reinstituting some kind of like Pentecostal theocracy or something like that, you know. But I, I do just think that there, that there is there is no neutrality, really, you know. And, and for me, the way that's expressed, and you can find it in Thomas, is this natural desire for the supernatural. There is nothing neutral because everything is pointing towards fulfillment in God. But there are certain ways of reading him, I think, where he probably did leave the door open for something like pure nature or something like secularity. That's great. So hopefully as you're listening today, I know there's a lot of new concepts for some. Maybe you've read about this before. Um, for others, this could all be new. Point of it, though, is it's it's fascinating to me when we go back and study theologians like this, where uh, whole streams of thought today that are wildly influential can come from, you know, debated parts of what they shared, and and I think that that's helpful. And of course, you know, there's not many out there unless you are a, a theologian to to dive into all the different voices. But I do think there's a few that are worth knowing. And what becomes helpful over time as we become more familiar with Aquinas and Calvin and these different these different people is then as we wrestle through our own issues, um, it's interesting to look and see how would how would they interact with that? What would they say about that? And knowing fully that you know we can't just copy and paste all their thought, but um, we can learn from them and trust that the Holy Spirit was speaking through them, just as He speaks through us. And so. Uh, Josh, it's so good having you on today, and I pray for everybody listening that there would be um, some takeaways here and, uh, you know, and uh, this idea of what does it mean to participate in the ongoing work of God and the beauty of the goodness of God. And we'll leave you with that thought today and look forward to seeing you back here next week on Ideology. short interjection here if it sounds like drew is speaking from underwater he has he's masked up today so if the actually they're waterboarding me send help <laughs> <laughs> sit still <laughs>